Welcome, welcome back. Welcome to Theo 101, I believe. We are excited. We are in the week of the midterm. Yes. We're, we're going to add two words to the creed today, though, of heaven and earth. So what is God the creator of? God, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So we're going to add those two words to the creed today. And we're going to hear a little bit more, I think, about science, about the scope of God's creation about what it means for God to be rational, or can we understand God rationally in any way through science or through thinking? Um, and so that's on tap for us today, and I'm super excited. Yes, and you'll get more opportunities to explore this, of course, on Friday as well. So keep those questions coming and keep those thoughts percolating in your minds. And, uh, but before we get to our today's lecture, we wanna talk with you a little bit about the midterm, which will be what day? Wednesday. And where? Here, Here in Bauman. Oh my goodness, you guys. Warms the heart. You guys are doing yeah. really great already. So we have a, a series of questions, some frequent, frequently asked questions, if you will, and we will answer them. One is, what should I study for the exam? What should we study? The Theo study guide is, yes. the, is the simplest and best and, in fact, only way we know how to answer that question. Yes. The Theo study guide. We've been, we've been harping about it for weeks, but we just want to make sure you know about it. In fact, I'll be sending out an email to all of you today through, your, through Foxdale, which will have it linked. It's also linked on the syllabus. It's also linked on the top of the syllabus. It's also linked within the syllabus. And I know many of you have been checking in with it, but that's, that's our authoritative guide. And actually, that's the answer to almost every question that you ask. Yes. So you don't even have to ask. That's the answer. The Theo <laughs> study guide tells you the format, tells you it, we, we can't think of any other way to put it. Other than, what, other than how we've put it. Another question is, how should I study? Well, I actually have a recommendation for that, and it would be not last minute. So hopefully you've already been studying, because we've been talking about it for quite some time. Um, but I recommend studying before tomorrow night, if you can. That would be my recommendation, and also study with others. It, you, there, the scriptures say there's a wisdom in a multitude of counsel, and that is certainly the case when it comes to studying. So study well with others. Um, another question is where and when? We've answered this before. 11 a.m. here, but, but this raises another question. Yes. When, if you have an exam in a college class, when should you arrive for the exam? Should you arrive at the exact minute the exam is supposed to start? I would arrive early because if you come, we're going to be we're going to be starting at 11. The, it's the things are going to be handed out, and you don't want to be scrambling for your seat and getting confused and dropping your hydro flask down the aisle and all that kind of stuff. Please don't at that time. So I would say come at least 10 minutes early. That would be good. Yes. And another question is, how should we sit? Well, we are going to invite you all to sit every in every other chair for the most that will work for the vast majority of cases because we want to give you a little bit of chance to spread out and think and then of course it's very difficult for us to monitor or proctor your exam that's that's academic speak for us giving you the exam so it's important that you sit in every other seat and we will guide you for that so that will mean that we'll be spread out all across this bottom section here. Another question is, what should we bring? You wanna tackle that one, Dr. Doak? Oh, totally. Um, bring a pencil. So a lot of times people will mark something, but then you wanna change your answer. Here's just a little test-taking wisdom, by the way. This is just true research on, on multiple choice type exams. Usually the first option you pick is the correct option. 
and if you change it, you change it from a correct answer to a wrong answer. So go with your gut. Go with your, so I would say go with your gut. I see that a lot when I grade. I see, some, I see the correct answer erased and then another answer picked. If you truly actually like new information has come to light since you marked your first answer, then yeah, change it, of course. But using a pencil with an eraser to do that is really the way to go. Here's what you should not bring and what, you should, what will not be included in any way is your phone headphones or a computer. I realize it's probably hard not to bring your phone places, but anyone caught with a phone, this is very serious stuff in college, that's a zero, okay? That's a zero on the exam. If your phone is out in any way, if you have an earbud in in any way, if you have a computer screen open in any way in this room. And Does everyone understand that? Is that clear? So phones are not actually welcome in this setting usually. We'll repeat again, but they're especially like quadruple not welcome during an exam. And we take this so seriously, we do not want to give you a zero. This is actually a huge headache for us doing that as well. So help us help you. And please do not bring any yeah. additional technology. We are for you, not against you. Um, and there will be professors here helping you through this process. 30 so 32 instructors actually will be helping yes, you through the yes, process. Yes, so you'll so. have plenty of help. All right, I think that takes care of most of our questions. Um, and oh wait, I forgot to mention what to bring. Also, bring a writing surface. I know it's kind of it's it's a little obnoxious. It's kind of lowbrow of us to ask you to bring your own desk to class. I know, but this is an unusual room as as you've no doubt got a chance to learn. So, bringing a flat kind of bigger book that you could put an eight by eleven sheet of paper on would really help. If you have a, if you happen to have a clipboard, if you're a clipboard person, who's a clipboard person? Anyone a clipboard person? A couple people. Um, I like it. Bring the clipboard. Nice. Clipboards yes. would really help. Um, <laughs> otherwise, we might have a couple of extra that we can loan out to people, but not many. Otherwise, you'd kind of have to write on your lap or maybe on a closed notebook or something like that would be the way to do it. Otherwise, notes, of course, are not allowed during the exam. So bring, bring something to write on if you can. Um, it might be okay to write on your lap, but it'd be better if you had something flat. All right. So we are really excited to get to, to move forward through the creed. Um, I can't believe that we're already almost halfway know, right? through the semester. It's gone really quickly. Um, so we, but first we want to introduce uh, our speaker for today. And our speaker is Dr. Graydon Sorzy. And he has two PhDs, right? Two PhDs. I think he, a has a, he has a double PhD. A double PhD from Yale in religious studies and political science. That is intense, y'all. I'm so impressed. Yeah, his specialty area of study is, is kind of like early modern theology and philosophy, particularly John Locke. So in a very heady period where, where Christians were trying to figure out in a really intense way, what did it mean to be a smart Christian? Now that we've got scholarship and science all on the table, what do you do with faith? And so Dr. Zorzi has specialized in that area. We also asked him for a fun fact about himself. Yes. He said there were no fun facts. No, that's not true. That's not true. Yeah, we pressed him. We said, no, everyone, everyone has to have something fun. And he likes to play basketball, and he's a huge Sixers fan. I don't know if we have any Sixers fans here. I can't imagine there I would mean, be fans. I mean, I know we're in Portland Trailblazer. <laughs> He also myself. said he's into lifting weights. I don't know if that's a, that's a thing. That's a thing that people do in the world. I don't know. Better people than me. Never do have. That. <laughs> never have. But um, so we're really excited to hear from him shortly. But before we do that, we want to engage in our normal practice, which is reciting the creed up to where we are, adding heaven and earth uh, to our recitation. So will you join us and recite the creed? I, I believe, believe in God, God the, the Father, Father Almighty. Almighty creator of heaven and earth. Welcome to the Welcome. stage, Dr. Graydon Zorzi.
Thanks so much, Leah and Brian. Thanks for all your amazing work with this class. This has been a really cool experience this semester. I hope everybody joins me in that sentiment. Uh, pray with me. Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I know you're present here with us. And I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, <clears throat> if you're going to confess that God is the creator of heaven and earth, and not just any God, God the Father Almighty, you've actually signed yourself up for a task, you've accepted a duty, there's weight behind admitting, behind acknowledging that that God created this world. So what's the duty? What's the task? What is it that, that you have to do? I, that's what I want to talk about. And you, you can see, though, that there would be a task, because if the world is created by God the Father Almighty, that means that there's a rational mind, like your mind, but way, 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 way smarter, that created this whole world and had intention behind it. So there's order in the world. There's order because it's created by a rational mind. And there's purpose for the world. God doesn't do things accidentally. Minds don't do things, don't take intentional acts for no reason. So God was trying to accomplish something in the creation. The order that God has built into the world and the purpose that God has for the world are related and it's all connected to us, to humans. Now, I've been thinking about this this week and thinking about this task that God has given humans to carry out his will in the world, and we're going to talk about what that task is in a minute, but I was just thinking about this immense project that we're part of, and I was remembering back to a conversation I had in college with a, um, a professor who's my advisor at the time. Uh, it was a guy named Daniel Dennett. So I don't know if any of you have heard of Daniel Dennett. He's, a, he's very famous, actually, at least in academic circles. You can't get that famous as an academic, but he's pretty famous. He's an atheist. Uh, he's one of these guys like Dan da um, Dawkins. And these people are these new atheists, Sam Harris, who are trying to say that um, Christianity is totally wrong and that um, it's, like, bad because it's against reason. It's against science. Uh, and I, I was an atheist at this time because I grew up atheist household. I was not a Christian at all. Uh, he was my, I was a philosophy major, um, and I was sitting there talking to him, and I remember asking him, like, what's the meaning of life? Like, what's the secret to happiness? And he said, find a cause greater than yourself and devote your life to it. And that was great advice. That was great advice, because that's actually built into us. We are part of a world that has an order and we have a place within that order. And the duty that we accept when we acknowledge that God is the creator of heaven and earth is to carry out our role within the created order so that the creation can fulfill its purpose. So, what's the job? What have you agreed to do? We get it right at the beginning, right in Genesis. Genesis 1, we have... Um, the creation of the world in all its different, very orderly, everything in its place, ends with the creation of humans, and it's said uh, in Genesis 1.25 that humans are to have dominion over the world, to multiply, to spread, to fill the earth, and it's like, well, what is dominion? What does that mean? You find out when you get to Genesis 2 what God has in mind. Genesis 2.15, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden 
to work it and keep it. Those are our two tasks, to work it and to keep it. I'm going to talk first about this task of work, this task to work the garden. Have you noticed that the Bible starts with a garden and ends with a city? That wasn't an accident. It's not like that was a secondary plan, like everything went wrong. It was supposed to just be the garden. If only we get back to the garden, but we can't, so we're going to go to a city, and that's the next best thing. It's not like that at all. And we know it's not like that because Adam and Eve were supposed to work the garden. They were supposed to cultivate the garden. They were supposed to take the natural beauty that is reflective of God in a certain way and to explore the order that's built into that creation to find the hidden secrets of creation, to draw them out, to turn the garden into a garden city. Um, We were living in a city for the past several years. We just moved from New York a couple, about a month ago. Um, And while we were there, we had an opportunity to attend uh, Tim Keller's church, Redeemer, for a while. Some of you probably heard of Redeemer. Tim Keller's a great author. If you have a chance to read some of his books, you should. And Tim Keller has a thing that he likes to say about cities. He says that, in a city, you have more of the, the image of God per square inch than anywhere else in creation. More of the image of God per square inch. Now, I was thinking about that, and really he should have said that about college dorms. I think in college dorms, that's where you actually have the most of the image of God per square inch. I remember I was um, living in a, in a um, dorm once in college where um, my, my, I had a bed on one side of the room, and on the other side of the room, there was a sink and I could, I could sit in the bed and wash my hands. There's a lot of the image of God per square inch in that building, let me tell you. Like, it was packed. Humans reflect God in a way that's, that's greater, that's more accurate, that's more, um, more revealing of who God is and what he is than a tree or a pig or an onion. And when humans get together and think, and build, and create families, and relationships, and civilization over time, that reflects God more than anything else in creation possibly can. And this is God's purpose in creating, to display externally the internal glories of God, of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and to share those beauties and those glories with creatures that can understand and enter into that relationship. This is what heaven and earth is about. And we have a very important role in heaven and earth because we are the types of creatures that can understand the order. Everything else moves according to the order. We can understand it. We can build on it. We can do things with the order that God has built into creation. One of my favorite illustrations of the glory of doing something with the order built into creation is flight. And I've been thinking about flight because I just told you I moved from New York, so I've been flying a lot. We did not do the cross-country drive because we've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and that doesn't make sense. So we've been flying, and I sometimes have gotten a little nervous. With I used to be great with flying, then I started to get a little nervous. Now I'm doing better. But one thing I've been thinking about as I'm flying is just trying to look out the window and just think, I am flying. Like, people can fly. That is insane. Think about the glory of God that goes into just the possibility of flying. The laws, the order, the atmosphere, the way that the, um, 
the different component pieces of the atmosphere come together with the engineering that's possible to build something that can, a heavy, heavy airplane that can somehow float like a bird and glide and land safely. The order that makes that possible is immensely glorious. But now think of the glory of creating a creature that can come to the ability to actually do it. That's more glorious still. It's not our glory that we should see when we think about airplanes and all the other amazing advances of technology and science. It's God's. He made it possible and he gave us the minds to allow us to do it. So if you're going to confess that God is the creator of heaven and earth, that requires you to embrace this task of building human civilization. And everything you do is meant to be part of that. It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, or in Colossians, sorry, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do is supposed to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he says elsewhere, do everything you do to the glory of God. If everything can be done in the name of Jesus, if everything can be done to the glory of God, then that means everything can glorify God. Every single activity that you take, as simple as it can be, talking to a friend, writing a paper, calling your parents, building an engine, writing a symphony, whatever you're doing, fighting in a war, everything. Well, we got some Quakers here, so I don't know. We got we to decide whether fighting in a war can possibly be done to the glory of God. But if it can be done, if it should be done, then it can be done to the glory of God. This is a very interesting debate throughout the history of the church. Every single aspect of human life is meant to be ordered to the glory of God. So embrace that. Embrace excellence in your fields. Apply your minds Invent things, build things. It's what you're here for. It's what you're here on earth to do, is to build civilization that glorifies God. And Christians have been doing this. Now, some people may, um, may hear this, this embrace of, of reason and innovation and think, well, that sounds great, but hasn't the church really been pretty anti-science. And I used to think that, you know, I was, I was an atheist, like I said, growing up, and I got this sort of idea of this conflict thesis. The conflict thesis is that there's an inherent conflict between religion, especially Christianity, and science, technology, progress, reason. I got that idea, especially from my dad, who grew up Catholic, was an altar boy, very serious about the faith, but then when he went to college, he took a philosophy class and uh, decided that, um, Christianity wasn't intellectual enough. He was the first, um, the first one in his family to go to college, uh, and he went, got into a very good college. He was a football player, got a football scholarship, so he was able to go. He never would have been able to afford it otherwise. But he got there, and he took this philosophy class, and you know, he just thought, wow, this is what reason looks like. This is amazing. This isn't what, what I'm familiar with. I don't think um, Christianity is intellectual enough, and he rejected it, and I kind of inherited that attitude from him. 
Since I've become a Christian, though, I've talked to my dad about this, and I've just said, Dad, I love you, but that is just the very worst reason to reject Christianity. It's just truly the worst reason. Christianity is such a deeply intellectual tradition. It's so deeply intellectual. Did you know Christians invented universities? The first institutions of higher learning devoted not just to passing on received wisdom to elites, but to exploring new knowledge, to innovation where faculty are praised because they're innovative, because they invent and come up with new ways of seeing things, new ways of doing things, were invented by Christians, and not just any Christians, medieval Christians during the Dark Ages. Christians invented science. They didn't invent science. You know, there's, there's this view of history that some of you may be familiar with that goes, you had the ancient world, you had the Romans, you had the Greeks, it's classical, it's philosophy, it's Aristotle, it's Plato, it's very impressive. And then you had the church come along, kind of ruined everything, took about a thousand years of just ruining everything. Um, We call it the Dark Ages. Uh, And then finally people started to emerge out from underneath this veil of ignorance and superstition And then we get the enlightenment and science, and it's wonderful. Almost everything about that story is wrong. Even the term, the Dark Ages, has started to be talked about by scholars as as like a myth, and they call it out again and again. It's called the Dark Ages, but it really shouldn't be. It's not a good name for it. The reason the Dark Ages are not a good name for this medieval period when the church was extraordinarily influential over the culture of Europe is that that time was a time of rapid and radical innovation, technological progress. I just talked about the invention of the university, cultural progress, high art, culture, everything. There's so many examples of this. One of my favorite examples of this um, uh, comes with agriculture. So in medieval Europe, we get the first economies that are not based primarily on human labor. So the Romans had known how to build like a, like a water wheel, which is kind of like a windmill, but it uses water power instead of wind power. They had known how to do that, but they didn't really bother because they were like, well, it's easier to just use slaves. Why don't we just use slaves? I'll just f- conquer some people and force them to do it. That's, that's great. Why would we need to go to the trouble of building this thing? Well, in medieval Europe, they started using water wheels like crazy and windmills all over the place. There, started, there came to be so many windmills that there rose all these disputes over it, and then you have the development of law, which goes, there's a huge development of law in the Middle Ages as well. Another thing related to agriculture, in ancient Rome, they didn't know how to harness a horse so that it could pull a heavy load. They could do it with oxen, so if you wanted to plow a field, you got to carry a heavy plow, and you, you had to use oxen, and they knew that horses were very strong, and much faster than oxen, but they couldn't figure out how to put a harness on a horse that would not hurt the horse when it tried to pull this heavy plow. So the Romans passed a law saying, you just can't attach horses to heavy plows. That was their way of dealing with the problem. Let's just make it illegal. Done. No problem. Well, medieval Christians invented a new kind of harness. Now you can attach it to a horse. They can pull very heavy plows. They can pull more than twice as fast as oxen. Things like that. There are just countless examples of this. The medieval era was a time of flourishing. The people in the Middle Ages ate better, had better heated homes, 
we're healthier, we're probably smarter than the ancients. And it's not just about time passing. You may be listening to me going, okay, well, yeah, but that's because they lived later, and so, of course, you get progress. Time does not necessarily mean progress. You have to understand how radical the Christian idea is. Really, it's a Jewish idea. It's an ancient Old Testament idea that history is linear, that there should be progress in history, that as time passes, we will get better at things, and so therefore we should investigate, we should discover, we should try to understand, we should expect to get better at things. That's built into theology even. I mean, Christian theology is, is right at the heart of that. You may think, oh, I'm studying theology, or you know, it's kind of pointless, why just learn what people have thought thousands of years ago in my other classes, I'm doing exciting things where I'm learning new knowledge. It's not like that at all. We make progress in theology all the time, not progress away from orthodox belief into some sort of um, you know, heresy or something like that, but progress with going deeper. God's mind is infinitely above ours. How could we not be able to go deeper? As we reflect on God's word, as we apply reason to God's word, we can understand it better. We can make progress. And Christians understood this from the very earliest days, which is why you get these incredible treatises on theology, on all of these complex issues that started right away and have continued and are still continuing. It's a live discipline. Other cultures, though, other humans, I, I, don't, mean, I don't mean to separate out different cultures. It's not like Europeans are something better than other people. It's not like that at all. That, if, you, if you hear that message or believe that message at all, that is not true. Before Christianity came, if you want to get a picture of what um, ancient European culture looked like, think about Beowulf. Anybody ever read Beowulf? Did you ever read Beowulf in high school at all? Okay, we got some hands up. Okay, so here's the picture of the world Beowulf gives. It's helpful to think about because it's very representative of the way humans think about the world in general and have thought about it for the most part apart from Christianity. The world is dark. The world is chaotic. The world is scary. Back in the past, there may have been some, there was something better. There was more technology, there was more happiness, there was more flourishing, but we can't get back to that. The best we can do is you can have a hero, a great man, arise, and he can bring a little bit, a little bit of order, a little bit of stability, a little bit of happiness. But he's going to mess up, he's going to get crushed, he's going to die, and then it's going to be even worse than it was before. That's history. Let's invent the university. No, it doesn't make any sense. In that context, why would you be applying your reason to the world if the world is chaos? The only reason to apply your reason to the world and to expect the world to be governed by laws is if you think the world is rational. And Christians did, and it changed everything. Not only did Christians go be, did, uh, the, did Christian society advance beyond where the ancients were in terms of science and technology and arts and everything, Europe had been, had been a backwater in comparison to the rest of the world, you get Christianity start being influential, influential there, and they rock it past everybody else. Now, I am saying that if you confess that God the Father Almighty created heaven and earth, that that means you have accepted a duty, a duty to explore his creation, to apply your mind to pursue whatever vocation he's called you to with excellence, to make advances in your field, to raise your family well, to teach them well. But it is important to recognize that there's a difference 
between affirming science and progress and technology and affirming every single thing that's called progress or every scientific paradigm. You gotta understand the, something about the way science works. Okay, because part of the reason that people think there's a conflict now between science and Christianity is because some of the paradigms, the ways of doing science and thinking about the world that are current in our world today, have some apparent conflicts with some ways of reading the Bible. Now, I'm not going to parse through whether there are actual conflicts there. I don't, we don't have time to get into debates over how to read Genesis and things like that. What I want to do is to give you a way to think through those conflicts. So here's how science works. Scientists operate from paradigms. They have paradigms. A paradigm is a holistic way of viewing whatever subject you're researching. And you operate from, and you try to come up with hypotheses that you then test using empirical research to see if your hypothesis is true. Now, what do you do when you get a hypothesis that goes against your paradigm, that doesn't fit in the paradigm, right? So you have this whole way of viewing the world, you come up with some research, and the research, you get something funny back, and you get a result that challenges the paradigm. Do you throw out the paradigm? Absolutely not. You throw out the research. That is what scientists do again and again and again. In fact, if you look in scientific journals, when the articles are published, some huge percentage of those articles um, get disproven within a year. Scientists are, the point of science is falling forward. We make mistakes, we have holes in our paradigms, and we, but what's better, right? You can't replace a paradigm with nothing. If you think a paradigm is full of holes, who cares? You still gotta work with that paradigm until you have a better paradigm. So when we talk about paradigms like evolution or um, the age of the earth, these are paradigms, these are hypotheses, these are ways of approaching the world, and there may be some problems with them, but they're the best explanations that some groups of scientists think we have, so they stick with them. Other groups of scientists disagree with those hypotheses, and as Christians, you need to parse through that. You need to be open to these debates. Don't be scared of these debates. You should be unequivocally for science, but being unequivocally for science commits you to absolutely no viewpoints in terms of what paradigms you have to accept. And even more than for science, you should be for the Bible. I mean, look, if God spoke to us, if that's God's word, here's the thing that we have to recognize about science. We have to understand, and this goes back to the fact that God's, God created heaven and earth this infinite mind created heaven and earth. The order that we're trying to explore, we know so little. We know so little. Just how little we know has been hammered home to me recently because my daughter, who's one, has been going through um, some issues with her eyes. When she was about three months old, we noticed that her eyes started to kind of wiggle some of you have probably heard of this. It's called nystagmus. Nystagmus means your eyes wiggle. But it's rare. It's a rare condition. So we have taken her to try to get this looked at. And she's, she's fine. She's great. She's doing wonderfully. She's had some procedures to try to correct it. And she's doing absolutely great. She can see really well. Nothing, nothing in the world wrong with her. But because of this wiggling of her eyes, and there's also a little bit of a misalignment, we've gone to all these different specialists. And we've literally seen the top specialists in pediatric ophthalmology in the country. 
We've been to Johns Hopkins. We've been to uh, Boston Children's Hospital. We've been to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We've been to Mount Sinai in New York. We've been to all of these top hospitals, see these top ophthalmologists. And the, the things that they don't know could fill so many volumes of books. They know so little about the eye, and yet they're able to do so much. There's so much they are able to do. I mean, compare the types of interventions that are possible now to what could have been done for my daughter even 50 years ago or 100 years ago, let alone 1,000 years ago, and it's just, there's, it's night and day. But there's so many questions they can't answer. There's so many things they can't explain. And that, this lack of knowledge about about the eye, about something that you would think would would be researchable. I mean, look, science applies better to some questions than others because you make, ideally, you want to make an experiment to try to confirm or disconfirm your hypothesis. And something like ophthalmology, you can be very experimental. You can try, like, well, we try this surgery, let's see what happens. Let's, you know, we'll try this intervention, see what happens, and you can learn from that. You can perform an experiment. Other people can try to repeat it. Other questions science is less good at answering. Like historical science, if we're going to try to answer what happened hundreds or thousands or let alone millions of years ago, how do you do an experiment? How do you do an experiment? You can't. I mean, you can, you can research. It's not like you can't do any empirical research, but it's very difficult, in fact, potentially impossible, to come up with some kind of experiment that can be verified, that can be repeated. What that means, if somebody tells you that they're absolutely sure that the eye evolved according to random processes, they can't be sure. It's not impossible to be sure. We're not even sure how the eye works now that we're observing now. How are you going to be sure how it came about? Now, I'm not saying you need to reject evolution. I'm just saying let's recognize that some of the claims of certainty that are made in favor of certain scientific paradigms are a little overstated, right? We're not certain. And if you talk to the actual scientists, they don't claim to be certain. They say, look, this is my paradigm, this is the evidence I have for it. The problem is when it gets to the popular level and it gets involved in these cultural debates and you start, everything gets highly charged and then people make stronger claims than they really have evidence for and now we get into problems. So, Ideally, you would be listening to me right now, and you would be thinking about this this incredible project that we've been given, this thing that your life can be part of, and that would make you feel proud. That would make your your head rise. It would make your... put your chest forward, you would be excited, you'd be inspired, you'd be like, yes, I want to go do that, I want to be part of this movement that's been stretching across the history of time, began before time began, this is what God conceived when he created the world, you get to be part of it, ideally you would be excited about that. But then, maybe already, but maybe later today, you think about it and you'll start going, you know, it's a little overwhelming. It's a little bit much. It's a little to to charge every moment of my life with that kind of importance. It's kind of crushing. And we got to look at the second part of the command on that note, the second part of the command. The Lord God put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. 
We get the work part. That's the cultivate. That's the build. That's exciting. That's amazing. Let's, let's, let's go. Let's, let's build things. Let's make things. Let's discover things. But then you've got the keep part. What's that about? Keep, guard, protect, defend. What in the world do we need to defend the garden against? The garden looks great. It's beautiful. What are we defending it against? We're the only people here, right? Adam and Eve were the only people there. So what are they, what are they defending against? They're defending against evil. What is evil? Evil is the corruption of the good. It's when something good, because it was created by God, is less than it was meant to be. And Adam and Eve need to guard against that. And they don't. They don't guard against that. And you know they didn't guard against that. You don't even need to read what happens in Genesis 3, 3 to know they didn't guard against that. You just need to look at the news. The world is messed up. It's on fire. we got all sorts of problems in the world. And I'm, just, I'm not just talking about out there you read the news. Forget about that stuff. Look at your life. Look at your friends. Look at your family. Look at you. Look what you do. You're a liar, right? You lie all the time, don't you? Hopefully not. Hopefully we don't, but I mean, come on, we're selfish, we're prideful. Human culture, human civilization is, is going to reflect God. It's going to reflect God. But it might reflect God kind of like a carnival mirror. It might not reflect him all that accurately. And that's what we have around us today. It doesn't really reflect God right. You see something about God, but you also see a lot about, a, a lot about us, a lot about how something you can kind of see, like, oh, this should be really great, but actually, instead, we've got all this horrible stuff going on. So that's the human predicament. We're here, we're meant, we're meant to, to carry out this task that God has given us with the level of dependence on God that a two-year-old has on her mother, with that level of dependence. But we've turned away from God, and so we build terribly. We do a terrible job with our task. We're deputies, deputized to rule over the world, to build this incredible thing. And we've been horribly derelict in our duty. So here's the issue. We really, really, really need to get back in touch with God and get back on the same page and get his help again and get things moving in the right direction. But the very last thing we deserve is to get back in touch with God and get back on the same page and, and get his help with moving things in the right direction. That's the last thing we deserve. So what do you do? That's the problem of the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament is about. How can a holy God come into the presence of an unholy people? That's what the New Testament answers. What if the God who created you to be his deputy, to be his deputy, not to be his child, to be his deputy, to be someone with authority, someone in an elevated position with authority and responsibility, what if that God could become your father? What if that God could wipe away the transgressions that you've made, could say, all right, forget about that stuff. Let's blot that out. And, not, and, and, and let's not just go back to being um, blameless servants who are called to do something and are, okay, we're back in good standing, like we're back in a professional relationship, but it's all good. Right? We, get hot, we get hired again instead of getting fired, whatever. Let's not do that. Let's go all the way to being adopted as beloved children so that our transgressions of duty become, it's, a, it's an errant child, should be forgiven. How could that be possible? Only through Jesus. You know, we're, we're, we're servants, right? We're servants. We're meant to, to serve God by carrying out his will in the world. And we deserve punishment. We deserve to, to suffer for our wrongs, for our sins. 
but God himself became the suffering servant. He took our place. He suffered the penalty that we deserve. Our transgressions against law, against order, against the moral order, because alongside this physical order, we have a moral order, a way that humans, that people are supposed to treat each other. Christ took our place. He suffered for us so that we can be adopted as children of God. You need him. I need him. We need him desperately. We need him so desperately. We can't, there is order, there is meaning, there is purpose to your life, but you cannot fulfill it. You cannot live into it. You will mess things up without him. You need him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful world. Thank you for giving us minds to understand it. Thank you for calling us to task, calling us to work, calling us to research, calling us to, to help others, to build families, to teach, to love, to be friends. But Lord, we know that we cannot do it without you and we have been wrong to try and we have done wrong in trying. By trying to do it without you, we have done wrong. All sorts of wrong things. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, I give you my mind. I give you my heart. I give you all of me and ask that you would use me to be part of this immense, beautiful city that you are building that will descend on the clouds and fill the earth, this garden city full of rivers where you will be the light of the city, Lord. I want to be part of building that. I want to be that part of that project, Lord. So we pray these things in Jesus' strong and holy name. Amen. Thank you, Professor. Thank you.